This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. Actually, it's a 40,000-mile ocean rowing, but it's actually a river trip because it starts and ends on a river. Today's episode is the 50th episode of the River Radius podcast. It's hard to believe there are that many episodes. Some episodes are cool stories. Some are ongoing topics. For this episode, I called up eight of the previous guests from episodes to get an update on how things are unfolding with those river stories. These conversations mostly go in order, except that the last one is last because it is longer and really a wild next chapter story for that follow-up. Let's get started. Our first look back conversation is from 2020 and the episode titled The Confluence of Boating and Writing. My guest is Zach Podmore. Originally, I interviewed Zach about his first book titled Confluence. Zach is a river runner who has boated the Colorado and the Green Rivers from source to sea. Zach is also a journalist for the Salt Lake Tribune. Zach keeps a very subtle and clear eye on water and rivers in the southwestern United States. And Zach is writing a new book, and I wanted to hear about it. Yes, this book was actually born uh, when I was on a raft with you in, in October in, in Cataract Canyon and floating through the rapids that are returning uh, that were once covered by Lake Powell and, and the sediment is washing out and there's all sorts of changes happening as, as Lake Powell uh, shrinks to its um, you know lowest level since it first filled in the 1960s. Uh, that trip, which we did with a bunch of, of scientists and listeners are probably familiar with uh, the, the great episodes you did on, on the Returning Rapids project, inspired me to, to try and turn an article that I wrote for the Salt Lake Tribune into a, a full book project. So with the help of uh, some writer friends, uh, David Gessner and uh, Kevin Fedarko, they kind of helped me put together an idea um, of how to structure the book. And um, I've decided to uh, circumnavigate Lake Powell, um, mostly by sea kayak. And, you know, when, it, when it's full, uh, which it hasn't been since 1999, the shoreline is, is 2,000 miles long. Uh, now it's um, a lot smaller than that, maybe 1,000 miles. But I've been uh, spending a lot of time out there kayaking around um, the lake and up the, the hundred side canyons uh, that come out of Glen Canyon and meeting with, with a bunch of folks along the way to, to try and tell the story of, of what's happening right now on, on this uh, reservoir that's you know such a famous and important part of environmental history, but that's undergoing incredibly rapid changes from week to week right now with, with the low water conditions that, that they're experiencing out there. This topic of the Colorado River is in the news a lot right now and I in in the national media and I feel like a lot of the national news doesn't really explain the story very well. There's a lot of drama, there's a lot of oh my gosh drought. I'm curious what what your perspective is around how things are changing with the Colorado River system in this kind of current time. 40 million people rely on the Colorado River from Wyoming and Colorado down to Mexico. The low water levels on, on Lake Powell and Lake Mead really are part of a, a water crisis in the basin that uh, is going to require, you know, the biggest cuts to water use in history. And that's going to be incredibly politically fraught and, and complicated. But if you 
you know, zoom into what's happening on Lake Powell itself, um, there's a really positive story to tell. I've kind of been saying it's a uh, positive climate disaster story. <laughs> and I say that because <laughs> this is part of a climate disaster. The, you know, the Colorado River's uh, average flow has been reduced by 20% since the year 2000, and that's linked to climate change. But as Lake Powell has shrunk, there's been an incredible rebirth of the side canyons. You can hike up side canyons and depending on which elevation you're at, um, you know exactly how long it's been continuously out of the water. And the highest elevations have been out for over 20 years. Wow. And you can stand in, you know, groves of, of willows and 50 foot tall cottonwood trees and uh, see beavers building dams and these creeks and fish and frogs and toads. And it's, um, it's absolutely coming back to life. And I think that's a story that hasn't been told quite as much in, in the bigger coverage of, of the water crisis, which is also real and, uh, of course, very important. But there's there's a different story happening on the ground in, in Lake Powell, and I've been trying to spend as much time out there to, to better understand uh, what it all means and, and what it could mean for the future of, of Glen Canyon. I'm wondering what you're seeing out there not the beavers and the pretty trees and the pretty side canyons, but what you're seeing that the humans left behind as the lake recedes. Because I'm hearing these stories about like dead bodies and barrels out on Lake Mead, which is a different lake, but the same system. Uh, I'm seeing pictures of boats that sank that are just kind of like upended and buried in the sand that are now being revealed. All kinds of weird human debris. Are you coming across any of this kind of uh, left behinds as, as you paddle around the, the shores of the lake? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the fascinating parts of being out there. Um, it's There's, yeah, all sorts of, of trash um, from cans to, sun, you know, <laughs> thousands of pairs of sunglasses to boat batteries that, that people threw overboard or lost to, you know, full sunken uh, fishing boats that are covered in, uh, in mussels. The preservation of the trash is is remarkable you see these cans beer cans that are washing out from the 60s and 70s you know some that uh, before they even had a pull tab on them when you had to use a little can opener to puncture the top of the can mm. and the labels are preserved immaculately it looks oh. like they've been in a, a museum if they've just washed out of the bank wow. being underwater for that long hasn't led to any fading so you see these you know pristine looking uh, antique cans everywhere which i've been trying to photograph the boat batteries are, um, of course, a little less exciting to find if they're leaching uh, all the heavy metals out there. But if old relics from fishing trips in the in the 60s and 70s excite you, uh, Lake Powell is a good place to explore. <laughs> <laughs> when do you feel like this book will publish? Uh, it's looking like it'll be um, 2024 at this point. So try and wrap up the writing uh, next spring but then it'll take a, a while to actually be on shelves the next episode we will get an update on is about the greenback cutthroat trout and the work to establish that fish in its true headwaters in colorado the river radius published two episodes on this topic in the fall of 2020 this is the wild story about how the greenback was moved all around the state to different basins by barrels and wagons and how scientists trace the fish back to its home waters Evan Stafford from American Whitewater tells how the Greenback reintroduction plan is going. Well, there's been a few things that have happened since the episode. The largest event 
and most notable would be the Cameron Peak fire in 2020. Basically, the fire started up high in the Poudre drainage. It subsequently became the largest wildfire in Colorado history. It burned a significant area of uh, the river segment in question here. Uh, among other issues that that caused, it really took away uh, resources from the Forest Service. It was a, a pretty all-hands-on-deck situation, from my understanding. Um, so it kind of put this project on the back burner not long after we had talked the first time. Last summer, myself, Hattie Johnson, Southern Rocky Stewardship Director, and also Kestrel Coons, the Southern Rockies Associate Stewardship Director, we all were able to do a site visit with Forest Service staff and kind of explore the potential for other rapids to be fish barriers and discuss the project as, as a whole. Was that, so, was that tour with Matt Fairchild or a different person? That was with Matt Fairchild and a number of other Forest Service staff. You know, that was kind of just really at the beginning of getting the project back in motion after the fire. You know, it's so almost kind of a full year after the fire. Significantly from that conversation um, and that site visit, you know, the Forest Service believes, and I'm kind of inclined to tentatively agree, that most of the rapids in the Big South that we that we looked at that day would not serve as kind of permanent fish barriers. You know, there's some attributes that are required, just sort of the the height and gradient of the rapids, though they're significant. You know, there's sort of like either some side channels with sort of a smaller amount of gradient or the main channel even has enough kind of drops to to make it so that brook trout would probably be able to find their way upstream at, at certain water levels at least mm -hmm. notably we did not look at what i felt and still feel is the main rapid for consideration that would actually potentially be a natural fish barrier which kayakers refer to as double trouble a set of two vertical falls that the entire river channels through. There's no side channels. There are significant drops, kind of both of them. There's a large pool below that I have seen some of the larger fish on the <laughs> Big South pulled out of and then returned. But, it, you know, those factors and the factors that the Forest Service had told us they are considering, you know, would lead to a natural fish barrier potentially are all kind of existing at that rapid. However, we did not visit that rapid on that particular site visit. So it's kind of still a lingering question. Would that rapid require the kind of rebar concrete that um, starter fluid would need? My feeling is no. I think what the Forest Service would like to do, and I think what would make sense in terms of, you know, to actually determine that is to set up a similar research scenario as was done and is actually, I believe, still in progress at starter fluid, tagging trout and seeing if in reality they make it upstream or not. Uh -huh. You know, there's there's been some pushback from the Forest Service in terms of that as a real possibility um, because it would potentially expand the project scope significantly. 
there's many tributaries involved already in the reintroduction plan. And conceptually, the idea is to, you know, remove all the non-native species from all of those tributaries. Moving the, the barrier significantly downstream would create additional tributaries and their watersheds to, one, remove the non-native species, but then it would also create considerable more uh, habitat when the cutthroat are reintroduced. What we have asked the Forest Service to do is to do a price and project scope comparison because there's no real way to evaluate what the real difference with the project would be because there's, you know, there's costs associated with both. The River Radius has published four episodes about the Colorado River and Lake Powell and the Returning Rapids Project of Cataract Canyon. These episodes cross into many realms of river running, science, whitewater, climate change, and water management for the southwest United States. I called Mike Dehoff, longtime river runner, boat builder, and principal investigator for the Returning Rapids Project to learn what is happening where the Colorado River meets Lake Powell, which is not a true lake, but a human-created reservoir. So what is uh, what, what's happening right now down there with the sediment? It's moving. There, there's all the old sediment that's getting flushed downriver. What's going on right now? The reservoir has receded so much that there's only sediment delta in Cataract Canyon. The Colorado River is carving back out some rapids, but it's redepositing that sediment. And then there's just the day-to-day sediment load that's coming into Lake Powell and getting dropped into the upper reaches of Glen Canyon. That river-caused reservoir interface sediment delta is still creeping further and further into Glen Canyon. I, I describe it to people as like a mud glacier that's creeping downstream. You know, people are like, oh, I thought the pictures of seeing more and more mud is just the water going away. And in a sense, it is because as you lower the reservoir level, you see the sediment that's been deposited. But as you lower the reservoir level, it makes that sediment get remobilized and supercharges it in some way. So the choice of a lot of things that we have when we look at Glen Canyon Dam is we can manage the sediment deltas based on how we manage the level of Lake Powell. And if we were to dewater Lake Powell in a managed way, we could strand the sediment deltas so they don't do further damage. Some of the stuff that we're seeing is that when Cataract Canyon was inundated by the reservoir in the early 2000s and then the reservoir went away, we're watching the river be able to restore itself almost completely in 10 or 15 years in places. So you're feeling like if these things were to happen, 15 to 25 years maybe of, of, a, of a river moving through could bring restoration back to these this heart of Glen Canyon zones. Yep. It would also bring a massive amount of restoration to the Grand Canyon. How so? Because sediment would flow through the Grand Canyon if they let the river around the dam mm. and it would restore the beaches in the Grand Canyon. So when you say dewater, you also do mean open up somehow, whatever that means, moving concrete, creating a pathway that, that lets the river load up with sediment, pass through, pass around what is now Glen Canyon Dam, and deliver that sediment through wherever it goes, from there down to the next place where, I guess, Lake Mead, where it's going get, to get stopped again. Yep, yep. 
you know, you have this really unique thing where you started as a river guide looking at returning riffles and returning rapids. And now you're in touch, deeply in touch with scientists and the National Park Service, the National Conservation Areas. You're hosting and managing these these science trips, which I've been able to be on. What are you hearing is the likely future that we will see based on climate, based on weather, based on policy, based on water flows, water management? I know that's a crazy huge question. Yeah. What are you, what are you hearing? It's what I'm not hearing that gives me more concern hmm. or a place to pause. There is a lot of quiet from the Bureau of Reclamation. There's just a lot of lack of clear direction on their parts. What people who understand and know and have the ability to advocate for is what to do with Glen Canyon Dam and Lake Powell. People are saying, look, you need to realize that Lake Powell is doomed. The thing that we can do is control how it goes away if we want to, or we can just try to not control it and let it get even worse and worse off. Like, for example, what we're seeing at the North Wash boat ramp. No one wants to deal with it. So for 20 years, it's just gotten worse and worse and worse. And now that area is a ghost town. And some of the early inklings of what has happened at Height Marina is starting to happen at Bullfrog. There's more and more of infrastructure that's not being used. There's less and less forward thinking of what's going to happen here. How do we make decisions that are going to last 10 or 20 or 50 years into the future? And so taking no action is not a good thing right now. So then I go to where are the people who are thinking and advocating and trying to make a better future for this area? And what those people are saying right now is, we need to put bypass tubes around the dam at river level so that we can let water go downstream into Lake Mead. And I think with that, because we can't just think about the Colorado River as its water, we have to think about the Colorado River as its sediment also, because it is, it is the big mover of mud and the most efficient way to move the mud. And a healthy Colorado River always has sediment. If you let the river go around the dam at river level, you're going to have a healthy Colorado River in Grand Canyon. You're going to have a healthy Colorado River all the way from uh, the confluence of the Green and Colorado down to Lake Mead. In the spring and summer of 2021, three women ran the Sacramento River in California from its mountain source to the ocean where they passed under the Golden Gate Bridge at San Francisco and Oakland. The River Radius published three episodes chronicling their journey. California has huge mountains, huge deserts, and an enormous agricultural economy. I talked with Alyssa Winkleman, one of the paddlers, to learn how things are going for the Sacramento River. So we did have a pretty rough winter this year. We did get snow, but it came really early, and so it melted off pretty quick. Basically, we got a huge dump in December, and then it didn't snow again until April. We ended up getting a ton of precipitation in April and May and even into June. And even three weeks ago, we got a a bunch of rain. So it ended up kind of not being as bad as people expected. Um, But that being said, it's, you know, the water's low for sure. And the salmon are not having a good year. And um, farmers are still getting their water. But 
there's not a lot to go around these days. And Shasta Lake, which is the biggest reservoir that feeds, you know, the whole Sacramento Valley is super low. The upper part of the lake, like, it looks like a river again, it, which is cool, sad, because it's not a real river. And also, that's a great water storage place, and it's not full. It's not doing its job. So 2021, you do the Sacramento Source to Sea trip. And I know that your work wasn't necessarily advocating for a whole lot of river management changes or policy changes. It was really kind of seemed like about gathering the information, gathering the awareness, talking to people. Do you know if there's been any policy or river management changes since your trip? So I actually just spoke with a friend of mine who is the California science director for Trout Unlimited. So he gave me a little update on what's happening, and he is spearheading a new project with the state water contractors and some other NGOs and farmers and ranchers in a collaboration called Reorienting to Recovery Project. It's totally underway, and essentially... It's to get the whole Central Valley together and figure out how to do some really positive salmon recovery. It's got all the opposing sides working together and they just all realized like this is really dire and we need to figure this out. So it's really awesome in that way. The other thing that's great about it is that it's they're bringing the tribes in and really utilizing the tribal knowledge and their voice and what they really would like to see happening on on the river. The next one is the Winnemowintu NOAA and California Department of Fish and Wildlife have been working together to experimentally intro- reintroduce winter run Chinook into the McLeod. The McLeod River is the native homeland of the Winnemowintu and It used to be one of the the bigger tributaries that went into the Sacramento. Essentially, there's three main rivers that create Shasta Lake, and that's where they all converge. McLeod, the Sacramento, and the Pit, those all come together at Shasta Lake. And since Shasta Dam was built, there has been no salmon above Shasta Lake, essentially, for, I think, 60 years And so what's pretty cool about this is that in bad water years, the state creates projects, kind of experimental projects to help the winter run salmon. And this was kind of their best effort this year to bring salmon back into the McLeod, which is something the Winnemowintu have been working hard for for like many, many years. And what's cool about that is that there's always been a lot of tension between the tribes and the state and federal agencies and kind of like with the other project, we're kind of getting past all this weird tension and opposing sides. When the three of you were on the river doing your your top to bottom, your source to sea trip, there was a lot of filming going on with the clear intention of making a post-river film. What are you doing with all that video footage and what is it looking like for a release of that film? We're in the like final stretches of editing and producing kind of our intention is to make sure we can make the final deadline for wild and scenic for submission. The thought we had was that we do like a premiere film screening in Mount Shasta, kind of like start things off here since this is where we live. And what I'd like to do is kind of create a little mini film festival, like get a few other water related river related films together. And then The plan is, or it was, to do a screening in Chico and then potentially down in the Delta. 
those were areas that were really important to our journey. Those communities really like showed up big time and got super involved and invested and like very excited about what we were doing. So we don't have a set release date yet, but I would imagine it would probably be sometime at the end of September. And you'll keep people informed about that on your, on the SAC source to see Instagram. Yep, definitely. And we do have a trailer out right now that's kind of fun and gives a little feel for what the film is going to look like and some of the topics it covers. So you can find that on our Instagram currently. When this podcast began in 2019, there were no advertisers. In 2020, as the podcast grew, the River Radius was able to provide advertising space. What that has meant is that the podcast can support itself and that I, as your host and producer, can make this my full focus and my only work, and therefore I can improve the podcast and now travel further to record River Stories. When advertisers work with the River Radius, they are providing strong support for this podcast. When you, as the listener, can support these advertisers, it creates a circle of trust and return. Here are the companies that have worked with the River Radius since the beginning. Jack's Plastic Welding out of Aztec, New Mexico, home of the original Paco Pad. Fort Collins Kia and Fort Collins Nissan, car dealerships owned by a river runner who works to protect rivers. M River, builder of professional grade dynamic educational river flow tables. Big Muddy Adventures, the fantastic canoe outfitter that hosts river trips on the Mississippi and Missouri rivers out of St. Louis and is the only direct retailer in the United States of Clipper Canoes. Friends of the Yampa, working to protect and educate on behalf of the Yampa River. American Whitewater, working to maintain and enhance recreational river access for more than 50 years. American Rivers, working to keep the rivers of America clean and healthy. Rivers Edge West, restoring riparian ecosystems, working along the edges of rivers in the southwestern United States. NRS, home of excellent river gear and deep supporters of river conservation. Nissan, builders of vehicles for your river life. Down River Equipment Company, distributors of river gear and crafters of custom gear and custom boat frames. Alpaca Packraft, creator of the best hand-built packrafts and my neighbors. Lava Box, the finest portable campfire, preventing forest fires and keeping you warm with ease. As your host of the River Radius, I thank you for supporting these advertisers. In the fall of 2021, the River Radius published an episode titled New Mexico's Fenced-Off Rivers to learn about how and why some private landowners were able to build fences across rivers that prevented access to those rivers. This is a situation that went all the way to the state Supreme Court for the state of New Mexico. I called Hattie Johnson of American Whitewater to learn how the Supreme Court ruling impacted those fences and river access. March 1st of this year, 2022, The oral arguments went in front of the justices of the Supreme Court of New Mexico, the pro bono lawyers that represented the paddlers, anglers, and sportsmen argued their case. A group of private landowners, many of whom held these non-navigable certifications that provided no trespassing signage and... um, gave those landowners the ability to press criminal trespass charges against people recreating in the river. They um, intervened in the case. So on March 1st, the other arguing attorney in that case was representing those 
private landowners. The justices asked a bunch of hard questions of both sides. And then really after just a few minutes of deliberation came back and unanimously agreed with the paddlers and the anglers and the hunters and sportsmen that uh, the rule was unconstitutional. And they issued that all previously certified non-navigable waters were now void and the rule needed to be thrown out by the commission. So that happened March 1st of this year. We're talking on September 2nd, 2022. And just yesterday, the full written decision from the Supreme Court came out. And why that's an important step is that over about 30 pages really lays out exactly um, what rights the people of New Mexico have as far as public access to rivers and streams. And really importantly, we're very clear that these rights have been a part of New Mexican culture since statehood and even before that when the territory was was kind of ruled by a mix of Spanish and Mexican and English common law. The right for the public to access rivers is well documented in the history of New Mexico. And what's so exciting about this decision is that it kind of reiterated those the prior case law and, and constitutional rights. But it really spelled out that that does include any necessary, uh, I'm going to get the language not quite right, but any necessary activity to fully utilize rivers and streams for recreation. And and kind of via questions asked during the case and, and um, other, you know, context of the written decision, it's pretty clear that that means wading and walking and becoming in contact with the stream bed and the bank to a reasonable degree. It is also very explicit that it doesn't mean you can walk onto somebody's private property uh, from the waterway if you're recreating, and you also cannot cross someone's private property to get to the public waterway. But if you are recreating along the river, you are doing so well within your rights. The Dream Planter, Rafael Gallo, published in October of 2021, telling the story of a river runner from Costa Rica named Rafael Gallo. Rafael ran rivers, taught soldiers to be boaters, planted trees, worked with governments to protect rivers, and worked all around the planet for river conservation. Before he passed away in 2021, he helped build an organization that would continue this work. I spoke with his son, Roberto Gallo, and his colleague and friend, Shannon Farley, to learn what the organization was doing. We start with Shannon. Since October, we've had three reforestation events, planting over 3,500 trees out in the Pecori River Basin. And then in April, we turned around and we had a really successful three-day conservation festival um, centered around Earth Day weekend. And we had a summit meeting that invited government officials, university officials, conservation organizations, and private tourism businesses, so the rafting businesses that work on the Pecuari. And the point of the whole meeting was for everyone to meet one another, um, to establish connections so that we could all work together because a lot of people are working on projects individually and all over the place, but the more that we can all work together, the greater the impact will be. 
We did that together with the National Alliance of Rivers and Watersheds in Costa Rica. Then on day two of that event, we sent 88 people down the Pacuari River rafting. And it was a community rafting day where the rafting guides and the rafting companies donated their time, their equipment. Um, there was no charge to anyone and everyone had a fantastic day on the river. It was just this perfect blue sky, turquoise water day. And then the next day we turned around and planted 1500 trees in the Pacquari River Basin on some land that the Gallo family have. My name is uh, Roberto Gallo. Yeah, and just to add to that, it's been a very busy, busy year where we want to focus on all our pillars, which are conservation, uh, biodiversity, community, and then with that, it comes with the rafting portion, uh, which we are a sponsor of a youth rafting team in the area of Turrialba. We got some money up and uh, some private donations to, to take them to Bosnia and Herzegovina for the World Rafting Champs uh, in 2022. So we took them over there and I actually joined, joined with them. Uh, they were great ambassadors, not only for the sport of rafting, but also as youth environmentalists. They won uh, a couple events in the um, head-to-head the -head, and uh, they did pretty well in the sprint and the slalom as well. Uh, so overall, they finished fourth in the world for, for their category, which is amazing for Costa Rica uh, and, and as well for, for Rafa. And then, yeah, besides that, we've been joining forces for conservation through the tree plantings. And uh, we have a lot of upcoming projects uh, also going on that way for more tree plantings and um, more educational tree plantings in that sense, as well as we have a, a, lot, a lot of projects uh, being brought up for the watershed protection, for biodiversity protection, uh, the cartography map of the entire basin. So we have a lot of um, interesting projects coming up as well. Is there anything else that either of you feel like is important to bring into the conversation around this kind of look back and look forward? Costa Rica is known around the world as being a leader in, in environmental conservation and ecotourism. And there's a lot of work that needs to still be done <laughs> in many, many things in Costa Rica. And we're working hard to be part of that and to do what we can to continue Rafa's 35 years of, of conservation work that he dedicated his life to in the Pacquari River Basin. Yeah, that's an interesting part of it, actually. I think like in some ways, you know, around the world, there's, there's so many cool projects happening. In some, some instances, I think that there are projects that can be templates for other places to learn from. And it feels like the way you all are building this is a potential template yeah, I, I agree with that, that it's more like a template. Uh, and it's not only us that we have these amazing ideas. There's a lot of people out there that have great um, innovations for conservation or, or great projects. Are you all still connected with Columbia and going back to Columbia at all? Yeah, so actually it was another part of our project that we actually brought the Colombian team to Costa Rica and did a little uh, educational showcase of how tourism works here. And they're actually having their next festival in November, November 2nd. Is there is there a particular organization that I can look at to learn more about that, like a Colombian group? Uh, yes, there's, 
I guess, two organizations that you can look for. Remando por la Paz, which is Rafting for Peace, is their actual name. And they do have a couple of like social media accounts for that. But if not, you can look at Caguang Expeditions, which that's kind of the, um, the company they're using to run their trips. And they provide a lot of information through that. In 2022, salmon, the fish, gained a lot of attention in the Pacific Northwest as they are facing a human-assisted extinction. The River Radius published three episodes on the topic. One of those episodes was a sit-down interview with a group of women who were paddling from Idaho's mountain rivers to the Pacific Ocean following the downstream path of the salmon. I got on the phone with Libby Toby, one of the paddlers, to hear how their trip wrapped up and how things are going today in the pursuit to breach the dams of the Snake River. I've had these past couple of weeks to sort of, you know, sort through the the kind of totality of, of what the project was and the, the sort of wrap up to the project. And yeah, I mean, there's the last kind of final weeks of it, you know, as we moved down the lower Columbia, so we'd passed the lower snake dams, we moved into, you know, the, the portages or lock throughs around those, those four dams on the Columbia um, and then into the kind of marine environment. And we got to see sort of the final stages of, of what we started way up in the, in the headwaters and in these mountain ranges here in central Idaho um, and, and got to see the kind of completion and the terminus of this river system that we, we started on so long before that point. The, the kind of just physical portion of that piece of the trip was daunting. On the Columbia, we, we locked through three of the dams and then we ended up portaging Bonneville Dam. And then, you know, from, from there on down, that final portion of the, the Columbia is, is industrial. Um, you're, you know, paddling past the runways at PDX, um, you know, through the big shipping yards in Portland and on the lower Willamette, and then finally out to the Pacific near uh, Astoria. We got to experience tides on the river, the kind of tidal influx in that lower portion of the river and some really heinous windswell. Um, and having to, to navigate not only that, but then the marine shipping traffic, massive 800-foot vehicle carriers rolling up and down the river. And it, it is just such a far cry from the headwaters here. And it, that was, it was a very stark contrast that was very eye-opening for all of us. You had the Coastie, as she called herself, Haley. Was that, did that turn out to be as valuable as it felt like it was going to be? It was one of the biggest assets we could have possibly asked for. You know, not only did Haley have an incredible just familiarity with shipping traffic and communication with shipping traffic, keeping an eye on barges and carriers coming up and down the Columbia, but also I think one of the most valuable bits of communication she did for us was getting in touch with the Cape Disappointment Coast Guard Station. As we neared Ilwaco, as we were kind of getting ready to make the bar crossing, we, we had to make some last minute plan changes and she was actually able to communicate with the Coast Guard station. It, it, was a, it was a huge, huge asset. And so when she hollers at the Coast Guard um, base down there, I mean, she speaks the language and, and they know right away that she speaks the language. It, it was like watching a switch flip. You know, you, mm -hmm. you watch your friend sort of step into a completely different role that we've, we've obviously never seen that sort of side of her professional life, or at least I haven't in person. And so yeah, to watch that, that switch flip was, was very cool. Kind of intimidating. I was a little more scared of her after that. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Code switching. Yeah. You know, one of the big pushes for the timing of your expedition was around creating attention, informing people, and then asking people to engage in the comment period around the Murray Inslee draft report 
it was published. And then that was the report that was welcoming public comment. And then that public comment period closed while you were still on the water. Do you have any knowledge around what the comment set that was submitted collectively was like? Yeah, that, that report from Marie and Inslee, which was released mid-June, and then the kind of comment period closed on July 11th. Mm-hmm. It turns out there were a whole bunch of conservation organizations, both regionally and nationally, tracking the number of comments that were submitted. Nationally, roughly 100,000 comments wow. on that report were made, 80 to 85,000 of which came from the Pacific Northwest region. And from what I understand, at this point, the vast majority of those comments did favor breaching. That's sort of the, the kind of centerpiece of a recommendation to Congress moving forward. So a lot of support for breaching, which is incredibly cool to see. So what's next with the Grand Salmon story? You have video footage, you have audio footage. What comes next? Because you're all back to, yeah. I mean, you're, you're river guiding for, for work. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what everyone else is doing, but yeah, what's, what's next? I think first and foremost for all of us is, you know, we, we want to keep, you know, pushing as best we can to keep this momentum up. You know, I think we are all immensely proud of the momentum that we kind of helped generate through the Grand Salmon Project and the advocacy work that we were able to do. And so, you know, continuing to push, you know, from social media platforms, you know, continuing to push collectively for breaching and kind of taking action at those critical moments um, and helping other people to do so is kind of our, our one of our big pieces going forward. And then, yeah, we're in the process of sorting through a huge, huge amount of footage and media and audio from the entire trip and are working through the logistics of putting together a short film. It's a ways out still, but we are hoping to be able to submit a short film to film festivals next year. So hopefully by fall of 23, yeah, you can keep your eyes out for a a Grand Salmon piece coming and hopefully featured in a couple film festivals. We are really, really excited about that process. The last session of today's episode is a conversation with Ellen Falterman. Ellen was featured in an episode from December 2020 titled Rowing Home 5,000 Miles. At the end of her river runs down the Missouri and Mississippi rivers, Ellen rowed her canoe west along the southern coast of the Gulf of Mexico towards her home river, the Trinity River in Texas. As Ellen got near her home, she dreamed up the idea to row around the world. Literally. Last week, I talked on the phone with Ellen one week before she embarked on her Around the World Row. Here is Ellen. Yeah, I'm launching. So the whole the whole gig is from home for home. So what I've been doing, the, the river trips. So I started, I did the Missouri River, which confluences with the Mississippi. And so I just followed the water and did the Mississippi. And then I followed the water along the coastline to my to the river that runs by my childhood home and also where my brother died in. And so it was it was just this this really pretty bow that I got to put on all these expeditions that all the water came back to where I started, came back to where I grew up and where I experienced grief. You know, it just all came back here. And that's so that's where I'm gonna start the next one because I'm just following the water, you know? The next one starts where the next one left off. So I left off here um, at this this river called the Trinity River. And, uh, and so that's where I'll put in. So actually it's a, it's a 40,000 mile ocean rowing, uh, ocean rowing miles, but it's actually a river trip because it starts and ends on a river. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> wow. And so you're, you're literally going to start on the Trinity. I remember like you, you rode up the Trinity past the place where, where your brother died. And then you, you met your folks, your people, your family, you're going to start in that same place and go down the river now. 
That's right. And I'm going to start oh. in Edna in the canoe. Oh, so really? okay. I'm going I'm to put in exactly where I took out and row down to the bet to where the river empties into Trinity Bay. And then I'm going to meet Evelyn May there and do a boat swap. And mom and dad will take Edna home and then I'll continue east in Evelyn May. Okay. So, so what's the date for the launch? September 3rd, which is uh, the day my brother died in 2016. Oh, wow. I mean, that's, it's serendipity, right? But I was doing my route planning for Florida in the Caribbean and that, and um, talking to my sailing friends. And I think a good time to be in the Caribbean is in the wintertime, less hurricanes and stuff. So I was like, well, if I want to be in the Caribbean in the winter, then I need to leave here in the fall. I was like, oh, you know, maybe early September. And I was like, oh, shoot, September 3rd. Like, of course. It just, it just, like, it, it all came together like it always has been, you know? So September 3rd, you go down the river in, in Edna in the, in the Grumman canoe. You get to the bay. You swap into the ocean boat. Do you have your around-the-world 40,000-mile plan laid out? I have it. Yeah, I do have it laid out. Not necessarily port to port, but I do have a, a line drawn on a map that goes from home to home. Uh, westerly circumnavigation, because from 40 degrees latitude to negative 40, most of the winds are easterly coming from the east. So most of the circumnavigations are westerly to follow the winds. Uh, so the Pacific will be my first big crossing, which is also the longest crossing. So across the Pacific, French Polynesia, that's that's going to be exciting. All those South Pacific islands, I'm looking forward to that. Australia. And then um, from there, I need to decide if I want to go to South Africa, if I want to go through the Suez Canal most likely south africa but i kind of have a decision to make there in australia and then across the atlantic back to the caribbean and back home just like that just like that and so (laughs) how long are you setting aside for this so i keep saying seven years but i'm going to try to reduce my sentence down to five see if i could do it in five i mean i'm not racing i mean if it takes seven if it takes ten you know but you know I i think i could do it in five let's talk about your boat you know like give me the basics how how long how wide how many cabins how do you move this boat yeah tell me about the boat uh, she's 22 feet long four and a half on the beam draws about a two-foot draft with the freeboard down so very maneuverable in like you know little bays and stuff but it is at the end of the day a, a rowboat so that's that's really the biggest thing about maneuverability is is, is yeah i can i draw a very shallow draft but you know, there might, there will be times where I just literally can't stop the boat from going a particular direction, perhaps into those rocks or that coral. But I was, I was very pleased. I did some sea trials in the North Sea in the fall of 2021. That, that's over England, right? Over in England. Yeah. So I went to England in 2021 in August, September. I did a week-long sea school course where we, you know, like deployed life rafts, did first aid, poopy suits, uh, navigation, radio calls all that stuff and, and got all my licenses for that. And then I went up to Scotland actually and rode in a 12 man ocean rowboat. Her name's Roxy around an aisle for about a week with uh, 10 other people. And that boat was built by the same manufacturer of Rannoch Adventure. And they're made in England. Made in England. Yeah. So then I shipped her. Uh, she arrived March and I drove to South Carolina, which was the cheapest port to ship her. And uh, I went and picked her up, drove her home. So uh, what's, the, what's the boat made out of? In England, they keep saying glass reinforced plastic. And it's like this foam material in the inside, kind of like hard foam. 
and then the exterior is is glass uh, so it's it's lightweight but but still really durable um you can still get holes um actually one of the most common things that these boats get holes for is from marlin strikes they've got those those big spiky dorsal fins and they'll poke a hole in your boat and leave their fin this one ocean rower i've had woke up in the morning with a marlin fin between his legs mm. If that thing had been like a foot and a half higher, like he would have gotten like in the heart or something like mm. that's, that's wild. So mm. I've actually considered trying to put maybe some Kevlar 129 blanket or something on my floor. The boats can get punctured, but they are, it's incredible the kinds of things they have listed. And so like, can you do repairs out at, at sea? Like what, tell me. Oh, like, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, you get epoxy, fiberglass blanket. You could just, you could use the top of a Tupperware lid. I have a whole repair kit and also I have an ore repair kit now. I am bringing lots of spare ores, especially for the Pacific. I want to have at least three spares. So that's four total ores. That's eight ores. Yeah, right. So that's, that's a question because, I, I, you know, a lot of river runners are carrying spare ores and spare paddles. So you're going to you're going to launch with eight total oars and you'll use two at a time. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, probably, I'm going to launch. Wait, one, two, three, four. I have six oars right now, but for the Pacific, I want eight. Um, it's not uncommon for ocean rowers to break oars, especially during a capsize mm-hmm. when the oars aren't docked. And how long are the oars on that boat? Uh, they're ten and a half feet on the ocean rowboat. Wow, they're not very long. Yeah, I mean, it can't be much longer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm only one not very large human. Right, and I guess, I mean, the boat's only four and a half feet, so it's long and thin. Does it have a weighted keel? No, you have to just load the ballast properly. But she has a freeboard or a dagger board that goes down in the front, so I guess like a removable keel, if you will. Mm-hmm. But these boats are designed to self-right upon capsize, and I've seen videos of these boats capsizing, and they come around within seconds, especially if you have the ballast weighted low. But even unloaded, she should still come around because I've got two cabins, a floor cabin and an aft cabin, and basically they're just like giant air pockets. So when the boat capsizes, she wants to come around, especially if you got a lot of weight down low. So tell me about these cabins. I, I can't imagine they're very big, but they're big enough for you to be in. Tell me about the cabins and, and what you will use them for. Right. So there's an aft cabin and a floor cabin stern in the bow. Um, the main cabin is the aft. That's where all my navionics are. That's where I sleep. That's where it's bigger. I can lay down all the way. My feet like go under the deck kind of. So that's like the main headquarters. And then the four cabin, it's really just for storage. Uh, you can't really lay down in it. I mean, you could sit comfortably in it and it's, it's, it's a fairly large space, but there's no room to put your feet below the deck. And that's mostly for storage. It's also where my water maker lives. I mean, originally this boat is a two person rowboat. So she's got storage room for two people to live aboard that boat for at least three months. And then there's eight lockers on deck. Uh, that are all basically just fill up the deck space, but below deck. I estimate I can hold upwards of 12 months of food for me for a solo rower on that boat. The the cabins are airtight. Is that right? Watertight, airtight? Abs- like- yeah, yeah. They yeah they have to be watertight because yeah. that that is the self-riding ability of the boat. And it's also rule number one on the boat is you always, always keep the cabin doors closed because the boat capsizes with the door open, you're pretty fucked uh, yeah. because the boat's not going to self-right. Let's say I'm, I'm heading into the cabin, the, the door's open, and, and, and the boat, a big wave comes, capsizes me with the door open. Okay, so now the boat is capsized. She's not self-riding. The door's open. I'm sitting on the hole of the boat. So the procedure is you swim underneath the boat, close the door, and open the vent. On your way out, you grab a stick. There's a stick attached to the deck with a rope. 
So you stick the, the stick in the hole and you, and you have a, a manual bilge pump. So you start pumping and that pump goes to the top of the cabin, which at this point is the bottom, right? And the water starts coming out through there. Air is going in through the vent that you opened on your way out. And if you can get enough water out and air in, then the boat should self-ride again. I mean, your electrics are probably fried at this point because your cabin was inundated, but your boat's floating again. So that's the emergency procedure uh, for that. And are you, are you tethered to the boat? That's rule number one. I know I said the other one's rule number one. They're both <laughs> rule number one. You're always tethered, especially as a solo rower. I mean, if you get separated from the boat, it's game over. Yeah. That's, that's just all there is to it. Right. You're always, always, always tethered. I don't, I don't care if it's glass. I'm assuming you have solar. I have two solar panels on uh, one on each cabin and then two associated deep cell marine batteries. So that are independent of each other. So I can pull from one battery or the other or pull from both if I, if I want. And if I completely lose one battery or one panel, I still have an entire half of an electrical system. Okay. And then food, like what are you doing? You, you, you're not going to have a lot of fresh food. Right. Most ocean rowers are just eating freeze dried food yeah. as their main uh, diet, astronaut food. Are you going to fish? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll definitely fish for sure because that's a great way to get fresh food. Uh, and then you just have to be on your your vitamins and supplements because you'll, I mean, you'll get scurvy. Yeah. Are you like? Tell me about sleeping. I don't feel like you get to do like a long sleep. And then, do you have like an autopilot kind of thing that helps when you are sleeping? Um, I have an auto helm uh, autopilot that. I can put while I'm rowing. So the auto helm's not going to help me while I'm sleeping. What I do have is I could drop my para anchor or my ground anchor. And also I have my AIS has a collision alert system on it. So I can program it to go off if anything gets within two miles of me. So while I'm sleeping, uh, it's it's like a really loud alarm that'll go off and wake me up and I can uh, radio to whoever's on a collision course. Can we Uh, track you? Like, is there going to be like some live tracking of where you are? On my website, I'll have a Where is Ellen Now tracker. And that's on the ellenmagellan.com? Yeah. So September 3rd is the launch. In reality, this episode will probably publish after that in sometime in September. And so people people will uh, will learn about this and get the update. And you'll be where, – where might you be in the middle to – yeah, the middle of September. Where might you be in the middle? Oh, gosh. I'm going to be still in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I go 2.5 knots on flat water. You could probably walk faster. No, I mean, uh, it's going to take me around three or four months to get to South Florida. So I'll, I'll, I'll be spending some time in South Florida getting ready to put on my big girl pants and enter the Caribbean. Right on, Ellen. Well, thank you for your time. And I'm glad you're doing this. I appreciate it. You'd be cool. Okay. I'll catch you later. Thanks. You bet. Bye. Bye. At the close of this 50th episode, a River Radius podcast size thank you goes out to you, the listener. Because you listen to the River Radius, because it is in your podcast library, because you share it with your friends, because you come back to each episode. The River Radius podcast is creating a river community that tells stories and learns about river science and works to keep rivers full of clean, flowing water and all the other flora and fauna that make up a riparian zone. And of course... A 50-size thank you goes out to each of the follow-up guests today. And there are other people behind the scenes here at the River Radius. Sam Sice runs our social media. Greg Cairns and Samara Rosen are on board as contributing hosts. So many friends provide regular feedback. And Rose is the resident. Hey, can you listen to this real quick, editor? Thank you to each of you. 
We will keep building and publishing episodes. I will be traveling to West Virginia and the Golly Fest this month, September. We will have a booth. Come find us. And we will be building episodes there and in and around other rivers of the Appalachian Mountains. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and we are building an educational-based TikTok account. All music is composed and performed by Gene Reiniger. Be in touch anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius. Rule number one on the boat is you always, always keep the cabin doors closed. Uh, a positive climate disaster story. <laughs> and are you are you tethered to the boat? That's rule number one. <laughs> I know I said the other one's rule number one. They're both rule number one. <laughs> rule number one and rule number one is you're always tethered, especially as a solo rower. <laughs>